0: Also, very thankful for the fires that are being contained so well and the evacuations being recalled. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 3. If you want to turn there now, we're going to continue in our series in Isaiah. So, why don't we start with a word of prayer? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your revelation to us. And Lord, more, most importantly, we're thankful for your revelation of yourself to us. And Lord, we ask that in this time that we would see more of you and Lord, less of ourselves, that we would value more of you and value less of this world. So we ask that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll be, In Isaiah chapter 3 today, we're going to continue on in the chapter where we left off last week. The title of the message is The Wasteland of Worldliness. Worldliness is a kind of a difficult subject to talk about because it's kind of hard to make it seem bad. You know what I mean? Because we live in a world where it's possible... To, to customize everything you do from, from social media to, to smartphones to even preferences from Netflix, you know, emailing you, oh, you might like this show next. Everything's kind of catered to our own likes and our own preferences. And it's, and it's, and it's almost as if that social media and technology has minimized the things that we don't like and maximized the things that we like. So it's, it's asking us, oh, what do you like? Do you like this? Do you not like this? And we can thumbs down a song. We can, we can give a bad rating to a movie on Netflix that we don't like. And it won't recommend anything more like that. And so in this world of personally catered experiences, of a personally catered life, especially in our culture today, we, we think of sometimes we think of, of worldliness, of, of loving the things in this world almost as like a good thing. Like everything's going well for me because I'm the world is treating me well, if you know what I mean. And so even going to church and even learning at church is often talked about by, by non-believers in a, in a worldly sense of values. If you tell a non-believer, for instance, that you go to church or you, you participate in their church, they would probably say something like, oh, that's good for you if you prefer that sort of thing. Or that's good for you to volunteer because that you have a sense of community. Or that's good because you have a meeting place, you can hang out with people. And it's hard to make them understand, non-believers, people outside the church, that, no, we, we go to church because we love God, because because God has actually showed an interest in us, not necessarily because we showed an interest in God. And so we're loving him back, the greatness of God, the majesty of God. It sometimes doesn't make sense to the world. And so for someone outside in the world who doesn't know the glory of God, worldliness is often a hard sin to make them be aware of because it looks like regular life. It looks like in ordinary life, worldliness and it 's even a virtue you know that that person you know they 're worldly wise that person is very worldly, usually indicating that they're they're well traveled or they 're educated or they know a lot of languages, or they ha- just have a lot of experiences they 've done everything in this world, and you realize that those aren 't really the experienced people because as far as spiritual matters are concerned, they are lightweights, they are infants, they are babies. And the person who doesn't really know anything except for the love and the grace of God is really the one who knows everything, who has the breath of experience because they've experienced the love of God. And so the answer for for Christians to understand the the aspect This aspect of worldliness in our lives is to examine ourselves and to ask, Are we not to ask ourselves, oh, are we in the world too much? Like, do we have to vacate the world? Do we have to live in monasteries? But we have to ask ourselves, Is the world in our hearts? Is it in our desires? Or is the Lord? Because there are a lot of good things. That the world gives us. there's a lot of beauty out there, and we're approaching a chapter where God's talking about stripping away a lot of the beautiful things that a certain group of people in Jerusalem have surrounded themselves with. And so when we approach this chapter, we have to understand, first of all, that beauty in the world, that, that the arts, that a picture or a piece of art or a movie can be beautiful to us. But oftentimes, we are the ones who make it an idol. We are the ones who turn the beauty into ugliness. And so in this chapter, we observe a group of people who have taken beauty, who have taken luxury, who have taken the things the world has offered them and turned it into idolatry. To pick up from where we were last time, God announces his judgment that is coming upon the city of Jerusalem He's taking away the able-bodied men. He's taking away the the bread. He's taking away the water. He's taking away from them their supplies. And you, we see in verse 14 of chapter 3 that God enters into judgment. In verse four, 13, the, the Lord has taken his place to contend. And you almost hear a hush over the entire room because God has taken a place of judgment and he will mete out perfect justice in this world or in this more specifically in this time of Jerusalem. And God's judgment now continues to the women here, the women of high status. But we have to realize, I want to say at the outset, God isn't just picking on women. He isn't just picking on women having nice things, but he's really picking on the, the, the gravitation toward worldliness and love of the world that we all share, especially as Christians. And the world is always pulling at our hearts. And so these women were called daughters of Zion, but they were really acting like women of the world. And so we see here, first of all, God's case against the daughters of Zion. What is God's complaint against the daughters of Zion? We start to read here in verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go tinkling with their feet therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will bear their secret parts and so we first see the the one of two major sins that the women of Zion that, that the women of Jerusalem the women who are probably in the palace in the royal palace we see the sins that they have surrounded themselves with number 1 they've surrounded themselves with haughtiness and haughtiness is a sort of pride haughtiness is kind of a swagger the 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 bodily if you will the body language of pride the way they act in every way that they are proud of themselves that they have lifted themselves up against god and that's why god announces earlier in isaiah a full assault upon the sin of pride pride is a poison to them because you see in isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 god is specifically targeting the pride of judah it says in isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the lord alone will be exalted in that day if it was just if it were just a couple sins you know one or two things of 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 social justice of maybe just oppressing the poor that that god had could have addressed and convinced them of and they would repent then everything could have been so much better god should have could have put his grace upon them but it was because of their pride that they would not repent Pride is almost like a sin upon a sin. And so they walk here with outstretched necks. They were extremely proud of themselves, and their whole demeanor showed their pride. They walk around with outstretched necks, probably also looking around for other people to see them. Obsessed with their own status, they aim to be noticed. And guess who notices? God notices God notices pride because pride is an affront to his glory. A lot of times we we think of pride as, you know, some kind of family pride of being happy with who you are. And we when we think of God judging pride, we think God of we think of God throwing down a lightning bolt because he doesn't want you to be happy, but no, because the human heart never just stops at being happy, of, of being content. No, when you're prideful and you're proud of yourself, you make an idol of yourself. And all of a sudden, you're worshiping your desires and you're worshiping your flesh and you are not bowing the knee to the Lord. And so God notices and God judges them for this heinous sin. It's more nefarious than what the God the, the sins that God was judging for for all the men in the city, where they were, you know, trusting in chariots or anything like that. They were oppressing the poor. This is more nefarious because it's of the heart. And so God comes to them to judge their pride. But the other sins of the women, other sins of the daughters of Zion, is also wantonness. Wantonness isn't usually on the list of sins when we think of. We go, okay, we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't cheat, we shouldn't steal, we shouldn't be wanton. But what is wantonness? Wantonness is simply a desire. It's a it's a It's a sensuality. It's a desire for the world. It's somewhat of a lust for all things pleasurable. It's a looseness. It's a it's a fact that it's, a, it's the place where you give yourself away to desires. And so, where does their wantonness come from? Where does their wantonness come from? In verse 16, the second part of that verse, they're glancing wantonly with their eyes, and they're mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. And so, it starts with the eyes, it starts with the lust of the eyes, the things that they see that they want. Their pride informed and even justified, their inordinate desires and lust, and they were being controlled by anything that they saw. They were looking up to drink any sort of sin. They were out there looking for temptation. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20, says something about the eyes. It says Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and he's talking about the grave of death that death is never satisfied, and never satisfied are also the eyes of man. Think about how many in biblical history even have been tempted and led astray by the eyes. Eve saw the fruit in the garden, the forbidden fruit, and she saw that it was beautiful and it was delicious looking. You think of Lot's wife when the whole city was being destroyed and they were told, don't look back at Sodom, don't look back at Gomorrah, and Lot's wife turned around just because she wanted a a last glimpse, and we know she paid the price for that sin. When David was walking around in his palace and he looked out, he saw Bathsheba bathing and he simply desired her. And so we see what happens when the eyes are driving the ship of desire. And it happens throughout the entire body, throughout the entire life. Their desire is a full-time job. Notice it says they mince along as they go. It's not talking about mincing garlic. It's talking about, you know, walking in a kind of a seductive way, kind of swaying the hips, if you will. And they're tinkling with their feet. They put actual bells on their feet so people would notice them. Some commentators also think that it was a way of, of worship to false gods. And so everything that they do was full of desire was full of worldliness and sensuality and there was no love of god there was no sense of the glory of god or the holiness of god in them and they were beginning to end women of the world their hearts were full of the love of the world of the love of themselves and this status consumed their whole lifestyle they cared nothing for the glory of god they cared nothing for repentance at all J.I. Packer said, and it's in your bulletin, this quote, those who love the world serve and worship themselves every moment. It is their full time job. So even as Christians today, we have to ask ourselves, what is our full time job? And I'm not talking about the 40 hours a week, but where is the time that you where where do you spend the time that God has given you? Have you spend it in the world investing in things in the world, or do you spend it seeking the love of God, loving God, knowing God, because that's an indication of whether worldliness has started to creep in your heart, started to seep into your soul. And so God reserves a specific punishment for these sins of the heart, for these sins of idolatry, for their self-absorption. In verse 17, we see that the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. God's judgment for the men and for the armies in the beginning of chapter 3 where he was taking them out completely. He was wiping them out. But for them, for these people who are consumed with the desires of the world, God punishes them with destitution. And so that's God's answer to their worldliness. He's taking away everything that they've made an idol, every comfort that they've surrounded themselves with that they thought could deliver them in the time of trouble. And so whereas God, last week we saw God remove, you know, he saw God remove bread, the the false prophets in the city, the soldiers, the, the water, the mighty men, right here he removes the trappings of status and wealth from these women. And we get For this time, we get a cataloged glimpse of the the costuming of the women, of everything that they wore. And it actually takes up several verses of our passage today. Look at verse 18. Look at what everything that God is um, taking away from them. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands. The anklets, I'm thinking, are the things that they were tinkling. Those are things that had bells. The anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, well, they have it, a big cabinet, and the amulets, and the signet rings, and nose rings, and the festal robes, and the mantles, which I'm guessing, not, not fireplace mantle, but, but a different kind of robe, and then a cloak, a yet different kind of robe, if you will, and the handbags, you know, the the Gucci and stuff like that, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils, everything that they surrounded themselves with, God takes away from them. And notice his reasoning for doing this. It, It was in verse 17 that the Lord would lay bare their secret parts, would lay bare who they really are. The Bible tells us to constantly look inside ourselves and examine ourselves to whether we're making an idol out of anything, whether we're um, skipping along and forgetting about him. In Isaiah, I'm um, sorry, when in Psalm 51, David called to God and said, Create in me a clean heart. You desire truth in the inward parts in the heart, and God was exposing the idolatry of their hearts. No amount of wealth or show can deliver them in the time of judgment, and we should learn that for ourselves. Because in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can't cover up before the eyes of God. And even though their eyes were wanton, they were looking at everything else horizontally and they never saw a glimpse of God. We know that God was looking at them and God saw their heart And secondly, we see that God's response is He humbles their pride. He takes away everything that made them who they were. They found security in pendants and bracelets and headdresses and things like that. And God was taking all of these things away. The trappings of wealth were replaced by the new trappings were being replaced by trappings of mourning and servitude and we see that in verse 24 he says instead of perfume there will be rottenness instead of a belt there'll be a rope and instead of well-set hair there will be baldness instead of a rich robe there's going to be a skirt of sackcloth and there'll be branding instead of beauty and we see this great reversal of God taking this beauty and turning it into ugliness and we we might think what is what is God doing he's taking away these beautiful things he's making ugliest is God just attracted to things ugly he doesn't want us to have fun but no God doesn't hate beauty God loves beauty have you seen it outside well maybe after the ash clears but have you seen the sky I spent last weekend in, in Seattle and San Juan Island area. It's just absolutely beautiful. You can see the glory of God all over creation. And we see the, the beautiful music that, that hymn writers have written and, and songwriters have written. And we've heard that music today. And there's something about beauty and harmony that we just can't quite place. And it just reminds us, oh, yeah, we have a creator. And we have a creator who has an aesthetic sense I don't have an aesthetic sense even. I have an objectively bad taste in music, bad taste in art, but my wife does. And she'll correct the things that I, I'll start to decorate the house and she'll be like, no, that doesn't work, by the way. So some people just have this gift and we realize it's not just something that happens, but it's something that's God given. So we have to know that God loves beauty. But why is God doing this? Why is God taking away their finery? Why is God taking away their beauty? Because God hates pride. And God hates sin. And when we turn beauty into an idol, especially for the believer, God's going to take it away. When we start spending too much time in the things of the world... When we invest too much time in the things that we love, those personal things that we personally curate for ourselves, that Pandora station that we're perfectly curated and we're like, oh, this is my go-to station when I'm studying, or things like that. We make an idol out of something as ridiculous as that. God, That's when God starts to strip it away because God hates sin too much for us to be comfortable in the things that the world offers us. The things of the world are, are great. You know, they're, they're gifts. And in Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's actually nothing better on earth than to simply enjoy the the gift that God has given to us, but we should enjoy the greatest gift of all, who is Christ, and we should love him more than anything else. And that's why Gerhardus Voss, a theologian, he had this great quote saying, beauty, irreligiously esteemed, infringes upon the glory of Jehovah. And so when we make beauty an idol, when we make beauty just simply a secular thing, divorced from the glory of god it takes away the glory of god it 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 competes for his glory and we realize that this is where the war begins what war are you talking about well the bible calls friendship with the world comradeship with the world attachment to the world it calls that war with god it calls it enmity with god you've declared war on God when you attach yourself to the things of the world, when you love the things of the world so much, and you make that your pride, you make that your hope and your esteem. And so God doesn't hate beauty. He hates sin. And we see the real loss in the situation. We see the complete destitution of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's left without nothing because they've trusted in Virtually nothing. They've trusted in what is really not trustworthy. Look at verse 25. It says, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And here you you realize that God has shifted the focus to the attitude of the women of Zion, of God's people who are acting like, the world but he's shifting the focus to the city itself that the, the city is losing people the city is losing hope and her, the gates themselves shall lament and mourn it's almost like the vision of uh, of a burned out building or something like that the building itself is mourning it has it's in ashes you know if you will it's put ashes on its head and it's mourning because of the destruction that has come upon it and we see that the women, their, their greatest shame right here is the reproach they feel from the loss, from the shame they feel of being stripped of everything they have. In v- chapter 4, verse 1, we'll just read the first verse in there. And it says, and seven women shall hold to one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And so we see that the inevitable end of worldliness is death. It's abandonment. But most significantly for these women, these daughters of Zion, it's shame. It's the shame they feel when everything is stripped away. That men could be dying outside and they realize that we have no one to go to. We have no husband at all because they've all been killed off. And so, what about us? What about our shame? We are left exposed to the armies. We are left exposed to the entire world to, for people, aren't foreign armies, to come and do whatever they want with us. And so they are guilty, and they are knowing they are guilty, and so they're looking to take away their reproach. And we see this comical image. We saw uh, it last week of several people pulling on one man saying, you can be our king now because there's, everyone's been wiped out. You can be our king. You can be the, the ruler of our house. And they say, oh, there's a guy with a cloak. He must be in charge. It's this absurd scene. And we see the same situation, except these women are grabbing a single man. They're holding him some seven points. And they're saying, come come, be our husband and, and take away our reproach. You Protect us. We'll provide for ourselves. You don't have to provide for us. We can, we can cook. We, we can bake. We can, we can work and stuff like that. But, but w- just take away our reproach and, and save us in this time. I, I thought of a song, you might think it's ridiculous, but that Beach Boy song, that two girls for every boy, the Surf City song. And I thought that's more of a, a judgment of God than, than a pleasure in this time. And we see seven women coming for, for one boy, and they're trying to pull him apart because they want a protector. They want a deliverer. And the greatest need for um, the, the men of Israel in this last chapter was a leader, They needed someone godly in place. They needed someone righteous to lead them through the situation. And God was exposing them and saying, stripping away everything, you really have nothing because you are outside of my will. You are rebelling against me. And the same thing with these women. But their greatest need here is a protector. Someone to remove the shame that they feel on the day of judgment. The destitution that they are left with. The shame that's coming from the judgment of God. And it should be clear now that this is not just an indictment of women. This is not just God, you know, getting down on women. Oh, you shouldn't, you know, spend so much on clothes and things like that. But no, it's about our flirting with worldliness. It's about God's people acting like the rest of the world. We learned, especially in the, the times of Manasseh's kingship, that the, the people of Israel did worse things than the people they Um, disenfranchised and they, they kicked out of the promised land that they were commanded to do they were commanded to kick them out because of their paganness because of their sacrifice and their rituals and their brutality and their cruelty and their massive sins against god but they were actually doing worse things and doesn't it seem like with some of the scandals that are sometimes hitting the the Catholic and even the Protestant church today, that even worldly people, they're like, we're regular evil, but those things are massively evil. And people in the church are are being convicted of and being accused of and sometimes being proven to be right of just terrible, awful things. How deadly is worldliness? How deadly it, it, it is that pride infects our soul, So that we have curated a special life for ourselves and we are not convicted of sin. How dangerous it is for God's children to be in love with the world. Because it just leaves them shameful. It leaves them in greater reproach because they knew the truth. They had the prophets and they had the law. And now they are destitute because they did not trust in God who had revealed himself to them. They had the truth, and they exchanged it for the lie. And so it should be clear now that this is about God's people flirting with worldliness. And so we have to examine ourselves. We have to take this passage and apply it to our own lives and look at and see what we're trusting in instead of God. So, what is worldliness? Well, it's a love of the world, it's a lifestyle completely independent of God. And we usually don't think of it as a big sin, like adultery, like thievery, like shooting somebody dead. But no, it's another form of idolatry. The author Jerry Bridges used to call it a respectable sin. Because it's worldliness, people look up at it and they're like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. But really, God is saying, no, it's a disease. It is a poison in your soul. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the cure for this worldliness? How do we escape this sort of besetting sin? How do we disentangle ourselves from this awful thing? Well, our answer, um, fortunately, is in the Word of God. It's in uh, 1 John chapter 2. And John has an extended treatise, if you will, on worldliness, on not loving the world. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, abides forever and so what is the only cure for worldliness well in short it's godliness the the the, the, the opposite of worldliness of, of having god in your life but if we wanted to break it down into two things the first thing would be simply knowing the love of god there are many people today who have said they joined the church and they they've become christians And then after a while, they left. And we have to think, oh, well, like, did they become a Christian? And then, you know, they kind of just opted out because, you know, it it wasn't working for them. So that God actually saved them. And then did he unsave them or something like that? Well, for many people, they they come into the church maybe as a personal preference because they they like the music or they, they feel a little bit better. But nothing captures them. Nothing truly regenerates their hearts. And they never knew the love of God. It's really the love of God that cures the worldliness in our life. And it's not only lo- God's love toward us, but it's us reciprocating and loving him more. And that part needs to be disciplined in our life. That, that part needs to be a part of our spiritual maturity, loving God more, and understanding that God is better than the world. What's the cure for besetting sins, that things you're, you're dealing with on a daily basis? Is it, you know, making precautions, keeping yourself out of temptation? Yes, and yes, and yes. All the practical things, but most importantly, it's loving God more. It's loving God more than these things, and it's valuing the love of Christ in this time. But secondly, how do we cure the worldliness in our hearts? We abide in Christ. We keep our eyes on Jesus. In First John chapter 2, verse 28, a little bit further down in that chapter, He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may now have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And in chapter three, verse one, the next very next verse, we see, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And do you see the answer right here in this text to the problem of the daughters of Zion? They saw destitution. They were sitting there on judgment day going, what do we even do? Everything's been stripped away from us. Let's just find someone to take away our approach." Someone, I, I'll take your last name. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll do anything you want me to. Just, just protect me. Take away my shame. Take away my sin. Because it's now exposed to the entire world. I have no robes to cover it, if you will. And so for us as sinners, we come to God. Asking him to rid us of our shame. Our deep shame that we feel when we come under conviction of sin. When we realize that we've offended a holy God. And we do that by clinging close to Jesus and abiding in him so that we might have confidence, as it says in verse 28, that we might not shrink away from God in time of judgment, but shrink toward him, shrink toward him, move toward him, if you will. So do you, do you notice the, the, the huge benefit we have? That we actually do get to join the family of God, that we, if you will, get to take on the name of Jesus because we are taking on his holiness, his righteousness, and Jesus is taking on our shame. What a huge benefit we have in Christ. This is everything. This is the cure for worldliness, this is the cure for the shame that we feel when maybe things burn up, you know, we, we lose things we are devastated financially but we are not ashamed because we are abiding in Christ so let us take that message let us take this carefully to heart and not forget that worldliness is a deadly poison but godliness that Christ is our antidote and in the time of judgment we don't have to be ashamed for having nothing Because we can be grafted into the family of God. We can enter into his holiness and his righteousness on his terms. Because he has provided a way out of judgment. So why don't we pray? Father, we are thankful again for your word. We're thankful that, Lord, we have the right. Lord, you call it the boldness to approach the throne of God. That despite who we are and what we've done, And the things with which we've entangled ourselves, that we can still approach you free of shame because of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, I pray that anyone in here, that Lord, maybe they're outside of the fellowship of God, maybe they're not a believer at all, that they would call out to you. That, Lord, they would see the doorway to take away their shame, and they would call out to you saying, Lord, take away my reproach. I know you can. And, Lord, for those of us who are believers, who maybe have been disentangled with things in the world, that, Lord, you would bring us to a place where we would lay those things down before they would set in, before they would become besetting idols in our life. Because, Lord, we know you take that very seriously. So Father, we ask that you would bless this time of worship and that, Lord, we would look deep inside ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.